want to welcome everyone to 50-year flashback of wrestling at MSG Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back at all these shows, a man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight starting on August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Rizzi. John, how you doing? I'm doing great, Tim. It's great to be back for another episode, looking back at 50 years at Madison Square Garden Wrestling. And my goodness gracious, uh, why did I um, go to all of those shows? The answer is because I loved it. Even as a kid. Even as a kid, you had a great love. This is a great show. Um, this is a great card this week. There's a couple of matches I definitely want to see. And if you'd like to be one of the first people to hear 50-year flashback of wrestling at Madison Square Garden, all you got to do is go to our Patreon www.patreon.com slash John Arizzi. Members in the Superfan, PWS Associate Producer, Producer, or Executive Producers tier will get access to this show early. And starting at only $5 a month, it'll get you in the door and you'll have access to all the original Pro Wrestling Spotlight original broadcasts from 1989 to 1995. And the higher the level, the more benefits you'll get. From Zoom calls with John Rizzi, access to 8mm films we discuss here, to unseen videos, and vintage magazines being sent out to you. And there's only one way to experience it all, and that's becoming a member of John's Patreon page. Patreon.com slash John Rizzi. Join the community, hear the history. Patreon.com slash John Rizzi. And John, um, for people who don't have the Patreon, or even people that do have the Patreon, can you go over some of the artifacts that are on Patreon and some of the things that are coming up on Patreon? Oh, absolutely. I mean, right now there's well over 100 posts, and those posts consist of uh, the original, unedited, with commercials, Pro Wrestling Spotlight Archive from April the 9th, 1989 right through uh, September of this year. So uh, there's a lot on there to digest. And uh, we have bonus audio. I have college shows up there from 1975. I have interviews with guys like Owen Hart. I mean, there's just so much content there. And then there are uh, also the uh, videos that I share with all the patrons and also some of the eight millimeter archives from back in 1973 at Madison Square Garden. Uh, There's so much. I mean, it really is worth, you know, the five bucks gets you in the door to hear all the unedited shows. And then we have different levels. I do Zoom calls uh, with patrons. I also, for the folks in the upper tiers, we give them free vintage wrestling magazines as part of their membership. And and that alone is equal to the price of admission. Oh, it absolutely is, because some of the magazines that I include, for example, if you're at a $25 tier, you get to get one magazine a month. Uh, if you had a $50 tier, you get two a month. And if you had a $100 tier, which there are uh, one person so far, he gets four vintage magazines. And the four magazines that I send out are worth $100 at least, because there's 60s and 70s and classic old vintage magazine. So I try to give something back to everybody. And you're always adding to it. Every day I go on there, you're always adding something. And I was, oh, I didn't even notice that. Oh, I didn't notice that. So you're always adding something to this. So it's not just one thing. You you have this as it is, always growing, always getting bigger and better. That is absolutely right. I mean, I always want to super serve the fans that are so dedicated to what I did in my history. And that's why I'm so happy that we do this show, because this idea that uh, Richie Garcia and, and you help facilitate and come up with. And I mean, this for me, you know, going back 50 years is really remarkable, considering the amount of shows I intended consecutively. And of course, there are things I don't remember. Uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, you don't remember something. I was like, hey, do you remember everything you did 30 years ago? 
like every week. If I don't remember something that I talked about on a show, I mean, how, how could you remember every single thing you did 30 years ago, let alone 50 years ago when I was 14? So I do remember a lot of it. There's, you know, that that memory that, you know, you have those indelible uh, moments where you remember vividly. And then there are other moments where you say, well, I don't really recall that. Also, you can look at it this way. I always like seeing you can see the scores of stuff. You can see the results of stuff. But when you talk to someone who was there and explains the atmosphere of there, it changes the whole game. Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, uh, that's why you try to give them a sense of what was going on in that venue at that time with that crowd and with the card. Uh, so that's why this is such an enjoyable experience for me to just kind of relive these moments and remember some of those events from 50 years ago. Well, let's go back into it right now. We're going to look at Monday, November 15th, 1971. It was another record attendance, 22,089. And uh, it was only a record attendance by like 19 people, but still a record attendance for the WWWF at Madison Square Garden. And this one is a big day for you, John. You finally get to watch one of your favorite wrestlers, Freddie Blassie, wrestle in person. But I, I wanted to lead up with a couple of things with that. Leading up to this match, first time you saw Freddie Blassie on television was on Channel 4. Is that correct? In New York City, it was a Spanish channel, and you're watching uh, wrestling from Los Angeles. Is that correct? Yeah, those were the tapes from the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles, and that was when Freddie was having his unbelievable historic feud with uh, the Golden Greek John Tolis, and Freddie was a babyface. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, of course, I read about Freddie for years in all the wrestling magazines since the 60s, and I always I admired him so much from all the comebacks he did and he lost a kidney and he got stabbed a number of times and he just was resilient and he kept coming back and he caused a riot at Roosevelt Stadium when he kicked Bruno San Martino low uh, and he caused a major riot there and he was somebody that just like you couldn't take your eyes off of him. He was riveting. And then when uh, I started watching the Channel 41 shows from Los Angeles and seeing that he was a good guy out there, which just blew my mind and reading about it in the magazines and then getting to see him actually in person, not in person, but on TV was incredible. Incredible. Well, well, let's go back to that for a second. You knew Freddie Blassie in the magazines as a heel. But then when you turned on Los Angeles, you saw him as a babyface. Uh, that's correct. Yes. Uh, and of course, the magazines write about something that happens three, four months after the fact. So when I watched that uh, Olympic Auditorium stuff, I was already enamored with Blassie as a heel against Bruno San Martino and his travels to Japan. He uh, allegedly killed several members in the audience. They had heart attacks when he was facing the Japanese legend Ricky Dozan and just reading about all, all of it. I mean, the times he's come back over and over again, he had hep hepatitis and he came back from that. Uh, I mean, I read about his whole history through the wrestling magazines back in the day and then uh, actually getting to see him uh, in Los Angeles and uh, on that television show. And I knew that that feud with Tolis that they eventually blew off at the uh, L.A. Sports Coliseum in 71, in August of 71. I think that was when that match took place. And then, lo and behold, he shows up on uh, WWWF TV in a different role. And that was funny to me. Now, when you saw he was coming, or you you probably just turned on TV and there he is, but now he's a heel. How did that make you feel that you were watching him as a baby face in L.A., and now he's coming to your area and he's going to be a heel? Yeah, well, first, I mean, I didn't know he was coming. 
I mean, I didn't, you know, that was a total surprise to me because in the beginning of the TV wrestling show, championship wrestling, uh, it would be, and you know, welcome fans. And today we're going to feature Pampero Furpo or Stan, the man Stasiak. And also making an appearance will be Fred Blassie. And when I heard that, when I heard Vince McMahon say that, that was beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, something that I jumped up and down on. And I may have a cassette of it uh, somewhere in the archives uh, with me screaming. And my mother thought I was like, what the heck is going on? You know, is somebody getting murdered in the bedroom over there? You're screaming like an, like a maniac. And I was like, Blassie is back. Blassie's back, you know, and who's Blassie? You know, <laughs> so, so uh, that was kind of, you know, an interesting almost like it was literally a life changing moment for me because of what I uh, I did later on. And, and to fill people in back in the day, a long time ago, there was no VHS recorders. There was no DVDs, DVRs, anything like that. If you wanted to save something and you were a young kid, you would take your cassette recorder and you'd put it next to your TV set and you record. Now, the problem with this is it picks up all the noise in a room, all the noise in your house at the same time picking up what's on the television. That is very true. I, I and I and that, and back in that back in that time period, you're talking about 71, uh, mid to late 71, cassette players were really just coming out. And they were very expensive. I mean, I had bought initially a little reel-to-reel player that was this little portable reel-to-reel player with about three to four minutes of space on it. And then when I was able to get a cassette player, I was a paper boy. I worked in a supermarket. I did odd jobs, and I saved up for one. Uh, and the first thing I did, and the reason I bought it, was to tape the interviews off of TV wrestling. And and, and, then, and then I started doing that. So uh, it was really crazy. But, I mean, the technology today, you could do anything with any anything but back then a little tiny little cassette recorder and these cassette tapes that are so delicate now in my archives i mean i'm afraid to touch them sometime it's just an amazing progress in technology that we made back then taping it off the tv i mean i, I it was a, it was thrilling for me to be able to do that and, and let's go ahead like 10 more years when I started doing it. I used to use my VCR because my my dad got two things on Christmas. We got a VCR and we also had cable. Oh, my gosh. So my first time doing what you did, I was recording stuff. But to make sure you get it right in where you want it, you have to start with pause record. And you had it pause record all set. And who's coming on? Who's going to be? Oh, I'm going to hit it. Because if not, it takes time back in the day to start up recording and start doing things like that. So it's so funny how like you did it one way. I did another way. And now today, people are doing it in different ways. Uh, I just look at it now and go, you guys got it so easy. Back in the day, we couldn't do anything like this. So, yeah, like, I'll, I'll tell you a funny little story. I mean, this is just because me, I was always a taping freak. I used to like to tape everything. Do you remember when, you might be still, you might be too young for it. I don't know what year you were born, but when MTV went on the air, yeah, MTV was it. You'd watch it for hours just because to watch music videos. I got a, you know, a VCR. And I would uh, sit in front of that TV for hours taping my favorite videos and waiting because you don't know when they were going to come on. And they don't announce it. They don't announce it. No, I mean, and I was a fan of Joan Jett back then, Journey, with all their great videos, and uh, Billy Idol. Uh, and this is going back to 1982 when it really uh, took off. And uh, I know this is a wrestling podcast, but I, I taped these music videos. And now it's like, you know, you, all you got to do is go into a search engine and punch up the name and you're, and you're watching it instantly and in, in, in crystal clear clarity, stereo and all of that. Uh, so, but I was a, I was a, it wasn't a hoarder 
But I always loved taping things off of TV and, of course, the wrestling stuff. And I had hundreds and hundreds of uh, VHS cassettes. I mean, big, huge boxes, 500, 700 of these things that I eventually just threw out. Now I'm saying, boy, what did I throw out? I I, I probably threw out some really cool wrestling stuff because I used to tape all the wrestling shows back then, too. I actually gave mine to a buddy of mine. He still has them in Pennsylvania, and we were supposed to dub them over because the videotapes, just like the cassette tapes, don't last that long. So if you get one, what you want to do is you want to put it in one of those record uh, rewinders. It will rewind your tape so it won't break, and then you yeah. put it back in there, and you play it once and record once because you don't know how many more times you'll get out of it. It's amazing that these things weren't meant to last a long time, but you still have yours from the 70s. I have mine from the 80s, and now today people can get them anywhere they want. Uh, that is very true, and, and, and to go back to the paper, Patreon for a second. Uh, one of those old VHS cassettes, because I, I, I had gotten a lot of them digitized, you know, with all my other archives uh, last year. And I found a tape that basically was one of those tapes that were in the stack. And I put it up on the Patreon page. And what was on there, Tim, was incredible stuff. I mean, uh, it started off from my college TV station where I was reporting. I was a sports reporter on the news uh, in the evening. And uh, so there's footage of me covering wrestling at Madison Square Garden uh, with uh, Bruno San Martino and Ken Patera. This was from 1977. And then it leads into my match with uh, Joe Turco against Chief J Strongbow and Peter Maivia. Uh, and then it goes to the entire Larry Zabisco, Bruno San Martino feud from the day he turned on Bruno and hit him over the head with the chair right through the Shea Stadium match. And I think I made this tape up for Booster Club members of Pro Wrestling Spotlight in the 90s. And there it was. And then I have the play-by-play uh, uh, -play play for a match with me and uh, me doing play-by-play -play for Cactus Jack Sunny Beach, Cactus dropping the big elbow on me, uh, the 100th show of Pro Wrestling Spotlight at WGBB. And then it ends with uh, about four matches from 1966, WWWF television, black and white with Ray Morgan as a play-by-play -play guy with Antonio Pugliese, uh, Bruno San Martino's cousin, who was later called Tony Parisi and a tag team champion for the WWF, uh, making his debut with Bruno at his side in a suit and making his uh, debut from Italy on that 1966 stuff. So I put that all up for the patrons for them to get a chance to to check out the history. So and I got so many more of those things. So, um, it's it, you know, it's it's an endless supply of memories. It really is www.patreon.com slash John Rizzi. Check it out. You will not be disappointed. Let's go back to Freddie Blassie right now. Yes. Um, what were you reading in the wrestling magazines? Was Blassie a heel or a baby face before he came to New York? What did you know of him? Or were you only knowing what you saw on TV in Los Angeles? Well, I, I, I like I read all the magazines. And by that time, I was reading, you know, 10, 15 a, a month. That's how many there were. Wow. Uh, and it was all Blassie in the in the latter part of 70. I think he actually turned babyface in a match against the Sheik, if I'm not mistaken. And then he and Tolis had the run. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I was reading all about Freddie in the in the in 1971 as being really a babyface there because uh, he was uh, he was wrestling almost exclusively for uh, the LaBelle promotion out in Los Angeles, and he was uh, also promoting. Uh, some towns on his own in uh, uh, El Monte, California, and San Bernardino, uh, a few of those others. But then, you know, then lo and behold, that night I started screaming at the TV. He came in, 
uh, as a uh, as a vicious heel, vicious heel. Freddie Blassie, international superstar. He was also wrestling besides in Los Angeles, over in Japan. He was bouncing around a lot. So how did you think they put this TV together for Blassie to come uh, to the Garden? It was like probably like one or two days he did in, where were they taping the TV at that time, Pennsylvania? Uh, they were taping in Philadelphia and I believe uh, Hamburg, PA were the TV tapings. And they would tape three shows per night in each one of the towns. And they would run them then each consecutive week. And what Blassie did, I guess when they came in, because he obviously negotiated with Vince Sr. He was coming in for a certain amount of time. It was only going to be three months, three, four months, max, three months maybe. And he was going to get right into the main event against Pedro Morales. So they needed to build him up on television. And that's what they did. He came in, and I think his first opponent was a guy named Mike Pappas. Uh, he was a Greek guy, a very high flyer, smaller guy. And, you know, when Blassie came in, he just uh, attacked him, started biting. Uh, he was known as the vampire. Uh, he started biting Pappas on the head. And all of a sudden, this big, uh, it was black and white because I didn't have color TV in my bedroom there. It was a big uh, X, and it said censored on it. And all you could hear is the announcer screaming, oh, my God, Pappas is bleeding. Blassie's biting, right? you know, and then he gives him the spinning neck breaker. Uh, for the one, two, three. And so that was like, holy smokes, you know? And and then um, immediately the next week, Blassie's on again. They do the same thing with the X. And he is, um, you know, he's being censored, but he get, he wins. And you hardly see him wrestle in the ring because it was all an X. So, and then they announce, all right, pa he, Blassie is just signed to meet Pedro Morales like next week right here. And they tape it all in one night. So Blassie comes out with his arm in a sling uh, with a note from his doctor, Dr. Herman, I think it was, uh, that he couldn't wrestle because he injured his arm, so he can't face Morales. And then Morales, lo and behold, comes out, and then Blassie takes the, the sling off his arm and starts choking him. And, and that, was the, that was all it was for the buildup. And then he was announced to face uh, Pedro at uh, the Garden Show on November 15, 71. Oh, that's amazing. And, and looking back, let's look back at the card itself, the wrestlers in the card. Richie was going over with me, Madison Square Garden in the 70s, like say 1970, the WWF ran eight shows at the Garden. Uh, I think they missed uh, February, April, May, and December. Out of those eight cards, there were 51 wrestlers. 11 of them were midgets or little people. 16 of them made one appearance. Only Bruno and I think it was Gorilla Monsoon did all eight shows. So we're talking about like 22 people in your rotation, in your like stable, if you want to call it, of wrestlers. Was it a big thing or was it a common thing for wrestlers to come in and out, not spend a lot of time in the territory? Because if Blassie's coming in, he may only spend a month or two here before going have to go back to Japan or go back to Los Angeles. Yeah, I think a lot of times when the WWF at the time brought in some of these uh, wrestlers from outside the territory, uh, would maybe be they're coming in to have a meeting with Vince McMahon, and then you know they're on the card. Guys like Eddie Graham, who was the promoter down in Florida, part of the NWA. Uh, I know that happened with him. But um, uh, there were always these surprises uh, at the Garden where it was like these names – you knew about them from reading the magazines that you never seen before, but they were in for a shot and they were gone, not even doing television, which was kind of exciting for the fans who were really in the know and read the magazines back then. For most of the casual fans, they didn't know who these guys were. It's interesting to me how small of a stable they had of people rotating. And you'll notice that like other cards we've talked about so far is that some of the same guys are wrestling just other people. Yeah, they had their, uh, you know, there, there was the guys that, 
uh, worked against each other. And then if you're booked on the garden show, I mean, especially the lower end of the card, you'd see the guys wrestle one guy, then the same guys would be on the next card and they're wrestling different people. I mean, the lower card guys uh, that happened quite often back in back in that era. Absolutely. Let's get into it. November 15th, 1971. Last time you went to the Garden, you took a lot of friends. How many people came with you this time to go see a show? Well, I mean, uh, the group had uh, gotten as small as two. It was myself and Frank Favalli, who I went to my first show with. It was just the two of us. Uh, so, uh, the, the rest of the group was like, all right, you know, this was cool, but you know, that's enough. Now, where did you get your tickets from and where did you sit this time? Got them. I remember going to A&S in Babylon, uh, West Babylon, Long Island, and they had a ticket master in there, Ticketron as it was called back in the day. And that's where we got our tickets. And we wound up sitting, I believe in the seventh row. Wow. Not bad. No, not bad. You can't get those kind of tickets anymore. If you go to try to go to a show or Monday Night Raw or anything like that, tickets, you know, you're sitting in the back. Unless you know somebody, you're not sitting in a good seat. But you're so excited to be there because it's not like a monthly thing. If Raw is coming to town, it's not a monthly thing like you were going to, a monthly thing. It was like, you know, every three months or four months. So we're living in a different time right now. And this is what I love about listening to the show and following up with you because different things, it's just a different way of watching wrestling back then. Oh, absolutely. And even different way of getting your tickets because you didn't know all you, you know, all they ask you, they have the prices, you know, it was like three bucks, four bucks, five bucks, six, seven, whatever it was. Uh, so the ringsides were seven and you had no uh, way of choosing your seat location. Like you couldn't, like you do today, look at a seating chart and say, I'll take the, the aisle seat here. You would just at the luck of the draw, whatever it was. And you'd be waiting for those tickets to print out. And you're like, where am I going to sit? You know? And then finally they come out, Oh shit, seventh row. This is great. So that's how that was. It was like a Christmas present every month, getting your tickets. And you're always like trying to butter up the person. If you can get something like on the floor, that'd be great. Can you check the floor? that comes later with Bill Baker <laughs> when, when I learned the secret of getting first row seats for just a $3 tip. Nice, nice. I love it. Uh, November 15th, 1971, we were talking about wrestlers we've seen before. The Black Demon defeated Chuck Richards in 8 minutes, 27 seconds. i tell you what I remember most about this. Get there early at the Garden. First thing you do, they had no merch. There was never merch. All there was was a program for 50 cents. And of course, Blassie's on the cover. And it's a nice picture of him with the Pacific Coast. Actually, it was the um, America's Championship. And it was an old picture from the 60s. And there he was on the cover. And I was so happy to get it. And then you sit in your seat and and the match. I mean, I remember Chuck Richards going into the ring. And I ran up to ringside and, and because there were no barriers. And I asked for an autograph. And that was the very first wrestling autograph I got was Chuck Richards. And you look back at it, it's like, well, you know, he, he kind of defaced the Blassie cover uh, with his uh, signature, you know, so. Do you still have it? No. Unfortunately, uh, I was living in North Carolina in, uh, this is going back to 1984. I had all my wrestling program, all my garden programs, everything there. And I was managing a band. We're on the road. Uh, we get back uh, from a road trip and someone had broken into the place and stolen uh, a, a lot of stuff <laughs> and including all my wrestling magazines and all of my uh, uh, Mets baseball yearbooks at the time too. So I was kind of devastated. So if anybody's on eBay and they see a signed 1971, November 15, 1971 program from Madison Square Garden signed by Chuck Richards, most likely it's John's. Yeah, I want it back. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, I found out something else about Chuck Richards, that Chuck Richards is actually the grandfather of Chris Candido. That is correct. Yes, it is. And Chuck, uh, his nickname was Popeye. 
They called him Chuck Popeye Richards. And he was a perennial jobber uh, for the WWF. And lo and behold, yeah, his, uh, his grandson did some great things in the business. Absolutely. Let's go to match number two, Mario Soto versus Rene Goulet. It ended in a time limit draw of 20 minutes. Yeah, this one was a uh, good guy against good guy. And it was, uh, you know, a lot of technical wrestling, the arm drags, the drop kicks by Soto. And, and both of these wrestlers were kind of loved. So the fans didn't know who to boo. They were just, they were just cheering on the work rate. And, and, and the fact that it went to a 10, 20 minute draw, you could see it. I mean, it, it's, uh, they're both guys that were winning on television and Rene Goulet was about a month away from winning the tag team championship, which we'll go over in the next episode, but it was a, uh, you know, time limit draw and, and uh, it was a way to just warm that crowd up and people were still coming in for that main event. And I think that's really interesting to talk about is how you set up matches back in the day. I, I remember seeing the same thing come to television, same idea where you put the first matches like one way, the second matches another way. So when you're going to a garden event like this, we talked about like the Black Demon, guy got around and stuff, so it brought the energy. Oh, we got to get in there. The matches are starting. You're watching. The then when people are there, then you got your second match that usually goes longer. So now we're talking about 20 minutes long. And then after that, the next match is better and better and better and better like that. That. Is that the format you were used to watching at Madison Square Garden? Uh, yeah, and, and um, you know, but uh, as we get into all of this, uh, the main event started to go on earlier in the show, sometimes in the middle of the show, for whatever reasons, that's what they did. But traditionally in the beginning, yeah, it was like opener, longer match second, bigger star in the third match, bigger stars in the fourth match, and on and on. Was there an intermission at the Garden? Uh, there was not an intermission at the garden. The show had to start promptly at 8.30, and it had to end no later than 11 p.m. because of the New York State Athletic Commission curfew. Interesting, interesting. Let's go to match number three. A guy we've seen before, Carl Gotch, defeated Mike Monroe at 11 minutes, five seconds. Carl Gotch, uh, like the guy that was in the match uh, before him, Rene Goulet, they were a tag team. They, were, they had been put together. Uh, with uh, the idea of giving them the straps. And uh, Carl was over with the fans. Very, very great shooter, technical wrestler. And Mike Monroe was your typical heel, you know, the bad guy that would try to cheat to win. But Gotch was victorious and uh, became one of my favorites because I just thought the guy had charisma and he was a great technical wrestler. And he turned out to be, later on, he turned out to be a great teacher. He actually trained Antonio Inoki in Japan. Amazing. Yeah, he was a shooter. So, and he was a great technical wrestler. And I recently discovered that through our research for this uh, episode when we were getting together with Richie and yourself, that he was the guy that trained Inoki. Crazy. How back in the day do you get in touch with people in Japan? And how did they get in touch with you? It's amazing to me. And how do they find out about things? And how do you yeah. get to in Gotch's case, I think it was because he toured Japan pretty frequently. He was in demand in Europe and in Japan. Uh, so that's where that connection obviously was made. I would like to know in the future, I'd like to go over in the future, the, the startings of, uh, of the U.S. wrestlers wrestling in Japan. I think it's really interesting how they get over there and how much some of these guys were so over there and they weren't over here. Yes, correct. Let's go on to match number four. I love the tag teams. I've always been a big tag team fan, and there these guys are back. I have never seen these guys. I don't know who these guys are, but the rugged Russians, Igor and Ivan, defeated Beautiful Bobby and Jimmy Valiant. No time limit given here. Uh, are these two heel teams, or what are they? 
they are heel teams, both of them, because beautiful Bobby and handsome Jimmy, I mean, managed by the Grand Wizard of Wrestling, which was so cool. They were flamboyant. They were bleached blondes and they were heels, but the Russians were heels as well. So this was kind of an interesting match. I, I always thought that beautiful Bobby and Jimmy Valiant before he was, well, he was handsome Jimmy, I guess, starting to call himself. But I thought that they were such a great tag team, almost like an early version of the Valiant Brothers. And I thought they were going to get the title, but they were split up not too long after that. And beautiful Bobby left the territory. At least he retired and then went into the front office and started promoting shows uh, and working in, in the New England area. Uh, to help promote those shows up there. But uh, I thought they were fabulous, but I, I think the uh, beautiful Bobby era was way too short in the WWF. And why do you think that is? Do you think it was a money thing? Do you think it was an injury thing? I don't know. It could have been. It could have been an injury because he stayed with the he stayed with the company for a long time. I mean, I, I remember, you know, for years, because in 1975, when I went to college in Boston and I started going to all the Boston garden shows, he and Ernie Roth, the Grand Wizard, were the guys that I went through for my press passes. And uh, they were either the bookers or uh, part of the promoters with Abe Ford back in the day. Uh, but he was there. He was present and he was there right up until, I believe, 76, 77. And then uh, he transitioned out and moved uh, back home, I believe, to Ohio. And it, you, you had this whole thing. You, you're building, building momentum, building momentum. And if one of you guys gets injured or he can't perform, what do you do? You bring in a new guy. Luscious Johnny, here you go, the Valiant Brothers. Yeah, that came a few years later. Johnny Valiant initially started um, his career and discovered by Bruno San Martino in Pittsburgh. And he used the name John L. Sullivan uh, when he first broke in. And there were actually cover stories uh, in like Wrestling Review of John L. Sullivan. Uh, he was a Bruno protege. He was a friend of Bruno, trained by Bruno, I believe. And uh, and then eventually made his way into um, uh, the WWF uh, as Johnny Johnny Valiant. That's so interesting. Let's go back really quick to the um, the rugged Russians. They were mask wrestlers, but again, at Madison Square Garden, you can't wear a mask. Right, you had to wear a cutout mask. You had the red hood, but you had the the open face, which was ridiculous. It just ruined the gimmick and. And I wasn't a fan of the Russians. You know, they were just rough and tough, but they were mid-card guys. And uh, they, they were never anything that I really considered. Um, and they didn't wrestle on TV very often, now that I think about it. They weren't on TV that much. But uh, they were just kind of mid-level guys. And, you know, without that mask on, that's any allure that they had was taken away. They just looked like idiots. And our earlier shows, we talked about how managers like the Grand Wizard could come out with the wrestlers, but they can't stay there while yep. the match is on. But one guy could. That was Arnie, Ar Arnold Skolin. I forgot to ask you last time. Do you have any good Arnold Skolin stories? Yes. Would you give me one, or is it you want to wait to another episode? <laughs> uh, no, I tell you. I mean, you know, it's kind of funny. When I got my press pass, the first time I got a, a, a press pass for the Garden to sit at ringside with Napolitano and Aptor and the, and the rest of them, uh, I had sabotaged uh, an elevator ride with Willie Gilsenberg, who was the figurehead president of the WWWF. Uh, the offices for the WWWF, which was called Capital Wrestling at the time, was in the Holland Hotel, 8th Avenue and 42nd Street. 
there was a bar attached, but and, and it was a hotel, but it was a really a kind of a rundown hotel. The offices were on the second floor. And I remember it distinctly uh, because even before I was getting press passes, you know, I found out it was I'd sneak up there and it was just a hotel room. But it, the sign said Capital Wrestling and, and, and Capital was spelt with an O, Capitol with a T-O-L. And there was a piece of gum that was stuck in the O that stayed there for years, maybe. I don't you know, no one ever took it out. But anyway, Willie Gilsenberg starts shuffling and he was a little old man with slick back hair. And he just shuffled as he walked. But I was like, and I seen him because I used to wait outside the hotel to see who was coming to take pictures and, you know, to get an autograph. But then I had, I was on a mission. I had done a little work for Ring Wrestling Magazine. Uh, I had uh, sold a couple of articles. I actually had a, uh, I believe in 75, I had a summer internship uh, in the offices of Ring. So I got a press card from them. And uh, so I see Willie and he goes in and I'm like, I'm going to follow him into the elevator. And I'm going to press 18th floor instead of floor number two. So literally, I get in there with him. I press the 18th floor. And he's a little old man. He's, oh, you made me you made me miss my floor, kid. And uh, we're going up. And all of a sudden, I take out the press card and a magazine. I guess I, had a, a, I saw the story. And I was like, my name is John Arezzi. I ran Freddie Bellassi's fan club. And now I'm a reporter for Ring Wrestling Magazine. And you know, this is one of my, here's my press card. And I would love to be able to get a press pass for tonight's show. And so on the way down, <laughs> second floor, he goes, come with me, kid. Just like that, goes in, rings the bell, and who opens the door but Arnold Scullin. And Grillo Monsoon was in there, too, because he was part of the stuff. And I'm like, oh, wow. And it was just really a hotel suite. And he says, Arnie, give this kid a press pass. And so I got a, a photographer's ticket. They used to have these tickets. One was your regular seats, but they'd have a, a, a brown ticket, which was for wrestler. It said wrestler on it. So if you were a wrestler, that's how you got into the building. Then the pink uh, ticket was a photographer ticket. And that's what I got, the photographer ticket. So I was like, this gives me full access. So that was cool. So that was a little bit of, of, of a story with Skolem, but you'd have to go. You, you didn't have like a credential that you could just use every single month. Every month you had to go to that office and get that press pass. And every month I was deathly afraid to ring that bell because they don't remember you from last month. And you almost had to do the pitch all over again. And they'd always open the door by a crack and, and peek out. And they'd always, they'd always open the door with a crack. And, and every month I'd have to say, I'm John Arezzi. And you have to go through the whole thing ever. And Arnie would be, Ugh. and every month you hear, there's too many of those photographers. We're going to have to cut back soon. I mean, they'd be threatening you, but you get your pass and you're like, oh, I made it another month, you know? Uh, George and Bill were known, really well known, because they were the guys. I mean, George Napolitano, Bill Apter, they didn't have to go through that. But guys like me and some of the others that, you know, Tom Burke, who would get up, he used to run, uh, uh, he was an associate editor like I was for Ring Wrestling Magazine, and Tom was the guy that got me the job there. He'd have to go through that and a few of the others. But the one story that was hilarious was that it was a garden show, and I'm ringing the bell and ringing the bell and ringing the bell. And I heard somebody in there. So and then you have the peak, the peephole and, you know, you look out and in this particular time, the door opened and the stench of someone who had just gone number two was uh, emanating from the from the door. And it was Skolin 
who always had a little chump, like a little cigar in his mouth. And there was always a bottle of liquor on the table. And he looked so pissed. And he didn't ask me any questions. I was like, here for my photographer's ticket. And he just gave it to me and slammed the freaking door. That was my Skullman story. A long one, but I mean, it gave you a little bit of a history of how I got my press passes at the garden later on. And this was in 75 when I started getting my official press passes. So interesting. So interesting that so many guys that you see around the wrestling ring and you don't know what... What, what they're doing, what their capacity is, that Ar- Arnold Skolan was working behind the scenes, and it could be with yeah. this person. that You just don't know who these people are. It's very interesting. And speaking of which, now you said Gorilla Monsoon, match number five. Gorilla Monsoon defeated Stan Stasiak in nine minutes, 51 seconds. My question to you about this match is, why? Why would you put Stan Stasiak, who is just headlining the Garden last month, or last two months, selling out, he's doing a great job, why would you put him in the match with Grill Monsoon and have him lose in 10 minutes? It doesn't make sense to me, but maybe you know better. He's jobbing himself out so he could go to another territory. I mean, he was only in there for three, four months, and you know, after your run with the main event, after your run with Morales, then you have to put the other guys over on your way out the door even though he comes back later on and beats Morales for the title in 1973. I mean, that was his way of, you know, you job yourself out and then you go into another territory and Stan was well, it was in demand everywhere. That's one of the things you don't see today is jobbing yourself out. Nobody wants to put anybody else over if they're leaving a company. Well, there's no places to work. I mean, you know, you have WWE, you have AEW now, but in those days you had a hundred territories across the country that you can go to a hundred different territories some were awa some were you know everyone had their regions uh sliced up and in the nwa you know you may have 40 or 50 territories just in the nwa so and you would come go into a place for a month or two get built up you lose you know whatever your your role was going to be and then you're out and then especially if you're the nwa champion i mean the promoters would pay to bring you into their towns just once or twice a year so the the champions always travel but all these other guys at least they had a place to go. And the thing is, there was no cable TV. So no matter what you did at Madison Square Garden on WWF TV, no one in uh, no one in the South was going to see it. There was no super stations. It was all regional. So interesting. It's just it's just a different time. It's a different time. That's why we're doing the show. It's about a different time and why things work then that wouldn't work now. Let's go on to match number six. Another tag team match. Chief J Strongbow and Victor Rivera defeated Luke Graham and Tarzan Tyler by DQ. Twenty four minutes and forty five seconds. It seemed that's a long, long time. Yeah, it was probably a two out of three falls, which I would imagine. And then one fall, you'd have Graham uh, and Tyler. You know beating Strongbow Rivera uh, by a pin, and then there'd be another pin. And then the third fall it was always like, uh, someone's going to get DQ'd so the title doesn't uh, change hands or a count out or something like that. So that's why that match was so long. And the fans were fully behind uh, Strongbow and uh, Rivera. Tylo and Graham were managed by Lou Albano, so that was our, your opportunity to see him. You know, I just remember because I was hoping that the good guys would beat the bad guys uh, and they would win the title that night, but it didn't happen. It, it, talk about Chief J. Strongbow and Victor Rivera. If uh, Vince Jr. had a chance to promote them, how do you think he would have promoted them as a tag team? Well, his father certainly was so much different from uh, Vince Jr. So, uh, but I, I, you know, who knows? I mean, Vince's uh, genius in his own respect, obviously, look what he built. Uh, but I really can't answer that because I, I don't know how we would push those guys. Okay. But Ch- Strongbow was a favorite of his. And Rivera, you know, in in coming years, really goes out of favor because he split 
as he was a tag team champion with Dominic Danucci to go to the new uh, IWA, which was competition against the WWWF in 75. He just, uh, he, he just left. I mean, he didn't take the belt with him, but he left the Federation and, and uh, he was blackballed after that for a while. And then when he finally came back, they, they put him in uh, as a heel. Wow, I didn't know. This is stuff we'll learn about later. Stuff we'll learn about later for sure. And let's yeah. let's go to the main event, the one you've been waiting for. Oh, yeah. It's a WWF Heavyweight Championship match. Pedro Morales defeated Freddie Blassie, your guy, in eight minutes, 24 seconds. It was exhilarating for me. I was sitting at ringside, and I remember uh, the dressing room was on the left side of where I was sitting. And there was no music, obviously. So as soon as I saw that white head of hair, and the sequin jacket walking down the aisle, I went ballistic. I mean, I kind of surged the ring myself just to kind of get, because I had a little Instamatic camera. You know, the one, the flash cube she used to put on top of a camera. You probably don't remember. Oh, no, no, I had, like, those. I had those. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, I mean, and I took a, I took some pictures. Um, you know, I took a, 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 I never, I took a shot of Freddie going up into the ring on the ring steps think I have a negative somewhere, but that negative is so old. I don't even know if it would ever even scan properly. Uh, and I took some pictures of that match. And all I remember is Morales coming in, the crowd going crazy. And here we go. I mean, it's like the place erupted. It, it was a frenzy. And Blassie, of course, goes in there and just immediately, you know, hits Morales, punches Morales, chokes Morales. The fans are going crazy, starts biting Morales on the head. And it was like you couldn't even move in that place because the crowd was all out of their seats. I mean, ringside especially, and the number, uh, the vast majority uh, were uh, ethnic. They were Puerto Rican. They wanted to kill this guy. They wanted to kill Blassie. And uh, it really, it was a very short match. I think, Timmy, what is it? Like uh, how many minutes did this thing go? Eight minutes, 24 seconds. Yeah, it was just nonstop. And then, uh, and then whatever happened, I, I, I think uh, it was there was blood drawn uh, when Morales uh, uh, hit Blassie uh, against the ring post. And Freddie, when he would, they call it drawing color. You say there are blood capsules back in the day. It was like you know, until you learned they were actually razors. In Freddie's case, and I may be totally wrong on this, because I know Blassie really didn't like to blade himself. Because if you look at his forehead and the times that he bled in the ring, a lot of times it may have actually been a capsule that he smashed onto his head because the blood wasn't flowing, like really flowing down, you know? Yeah. It was there. It was You could see it. And as soon as that happened, the referee just kind of looked at it and he stopped the match because of blood. And it was like, this is no finish. I was pissed. I was like, he didn't get pinned. And the match could have went on. I was livid. I was like so upset. And I, I, and I left there, uh, you know, I left there very angry because I thought this guy comes in. I thought it was good. You know, me, I was still a, a real mark at the time. I mean, I wasn't smart to the business at all. I mean, you had you to kind of think it's on, not on the up and up. But uh, I was I was fully invested in seeing Fred Blassie be Pedro Morales. And when that didn't happen, I left the garden pissed. Did they talk about a rematch of any kind or was it? No, because a- it was the last match on the show, I believe, that night. And so it wasn't until the following week on TV where they said, you know, now in December, the rematch has been signed with Freddie Blassie and Pedro Morales. It's going to be a Roman gladiator death match. 
And I'm sure we'll get into that in the next episode. And, and that'll be next time. And also, we're going to start getting into the WWWF's association with Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, which is really interesting. And John and I want to hear from you listeners if anyone has any good stories of wrestling from Madison Square Garden in the early 70s. Send us an email. We'd love to hear it. Send it to john at mattmemories.com and John will read the questions or the stories on the air coming up. And if you'd like to be one of the first people to hear 50-year flashback of wrestling at Madison Square Garden, all you got to do is go to our Patreon www.patreon.com slash John Arizzi. Members in the Superfan, PWS Associate Producer, Producer or executive producers tier will get access to this show early. And starting at only $5 a month, it'll get you in the door and you'll have access to all the original Pro Wrestling Spotlight original broadcasts from 1989 to 1995. And the higher the level, the more benefits you'll get. From Zoom calls with John Rizzi, access to 8mm films we discuss here, to unseen videos and vintage magazines being sent out to you. And there's only one way to experience it all, and that's becoming a member of John's Patreon page. Patreon.com slash John Rizzi. Join the community? Hear the history. Patreon.com slash John Rizzi. And let's thank again Scott Teal for his book, Wrestling in the Garden. And I want to thank Richie Garcia, of course, and of course you, Tim. I mean, without you guys coming up with this idea and concept, I mean, you guys came up with something that's pretty brilliant. And there's no one doing it because no, I don't think people were around 50 years ago who could still really talk about this as an insider in a way. Uh, so this is really a pleasure for me. And it really brings me back to when I was 14 years old going to these shows. And I look forward to each and every month to continue to tell the story of what happened at Madison Square Garden 50 years ago. And I thank you guys for that. Oh, you're welcome, John. One of the things that while we thought about the show was because wrestling is so different today and looking back at wrestling in the 50s, in the 60s and 70s, in the 80s, it was different times. So you can look at back and you go, well, why did they do it this way? Or why was this done this way? It wouldn't be done like that today. There's reasons for it. And I don't know the reasons. A lot of people don't know the reasons, but you were there and you can tell us the reasons why matches were made this way, why people left the territory, why things didn't happen the way they were supposed to happen, why the matches lasted so much longer or things like that, that we didn't know. Right now, there's so much, you know, there's so much TV out there right now and it's all prime time but back in the day you used to watch it at the weirdest times to find out about professional wrestling what was it like midnight remember that midnight on channel nine in new york at one time yeah it was midnight channel nine but when you were you know trying to find it on channel 41 which was the los angeles show which traditionally aired on the saturday late afternoon and then the championship wrestling show which was also a saturday afternoon and then on a tuesday night uh, you'll have all-star wrestling on channel 47 at 11 p.m. But you could never really get a clear picture because you'd have to put your UHF antenna on and, you know, put aluminum foil on it and point it in this direction and sometimes turn the TV sideways or upside down and get a clearer picture because the reception was just not there because those stations had their towers in New Jersey. And I was out in the middle of Long Island so, of course, you get your Channel 9 and, you, you know, you got Channel 2, Channel 4, Channel 5, Channel 7, Channel 9, Channel 11, Channel 13. That was it. Uh, and then you'd go to UHF where there was only three stations that I remember, Channel 41, 47, and then Channel 67, uh, which was a Long Island uh, local channel. And uh, they started air and wrestling when, the, when they started running the Nassau Coliseum stuff. Wow. Hey, see, it's just a different time, and I'm so glad we are able to do this together. Anything else from you, John? 
No, I really appreciate this. And, uh, and once again, this show that covered November the 15th, 1971, will be available as a worldwide podcast bonus episode on that day, November 15th, 1971, as you're hearing this. Uh, if you're a patron, you're hearing it early. Uh, and then everyone else out there in the universe will be able to hear it on the day it happened, 50 years later, November 15th, 1971. All right, for John Rizzi, I'm Tim Poutre. We'll see you next time. Thank you.